Welcome to another episode of Pilgrim Talk. Pilgrim Talk is theology for sojourners. I'm John Sweat. And I'm Dylan Harrison. And today we are talking about marriage and the reality that marriage is God's good design for us. Maui. <laughs> Maui. That's right. I don't know what that's from, but... It does. The people who know what that's from are all good, right? Carry on. They're not cultured, apparently. I mean, if oh, I don't we, know We're heavily cultured. And, uh, but marriage is for our joy and God's glory. And yet we struggle the reality this side of the fall that marriage is fraught with sin, disappointment, hurt. And so we're going to talk about in this episode, what, what do we do with that as Christians? How do we pursue not only our joy, but God's glory in our marriage in a way that pictures the gospel? Hope you enjoy. So this week's episode uh, is footnotes in a way to a recent sermon that you preached at Covenant Community Church. So for the sake of those that are on the podcast and not members of Covenant Community Church, we're going to do a quick recap of your three main points when you were preaching through Genesis 2, 18 through 25 of creation and marriage. You pointed out that marriage, the necessity of marriage, the equality of marriage, and the unity of marriage. Those are the main points of your sermon. We don't want to spend too much time there because there's more that you couldn't get to in your sermon that you really wanted to dive into, and that's what we're going to do conversationally here in a few minutes. You want to speak for just a few minutes on the necessity, equality, and unity of marriage? Yeah, so just pre- preaching on Genesis 2, 18 through 25, in our larger sermon series on Genesis 1 through 4, really just showing the one, main— One through 5, 1 through 6. It's one through, probably going to you'll, you'll do 1 through 11 at minimum. Maybe. Because how do you teach? Yeah. Yeah. So the 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 point was that 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 my point was is that God gave us marriage for our joy and his glory. And what we really see here in, in Genesis two, eighteen to twenty-five is God's beautiful and good design in marriage. We begin first with this sort of problem in verse eighteen. It is not good that sh- man should be alone. Yeah. And and all throughout we in chapter one, it is good. It is good. After every day, God evaluates his creation, he says, It is good. And yet we read, it is not good. That should be jolting to the reader if you're paying attention. Yeah. Well, why is it not good? Man is alone. And then to inflame this problem more, God brings the animals. God, notice the pattern, God forms the animals, God brings the anim- animals to Adam, and God names the animals. And then at the end of that, it repeats it again. It's not good that man should be alone, and God is going to make a helper for him. Yeah. And so there's this inherent necessity not only in the fact that man is alone and man is, is by, by nature being made in God's image, made a social creature, but Adam cannot do what he's called, what he's called to do without a helper fit for him. Yeah. He needs a helper fit for him, not like the animals. He doesn't need a helper that's another Adam. He needs one that is like him, but not like him. A helper fit for him that can help him, help him to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so that then brings us then uh, into the next section where now we see the same pattern repeated. God takes a rib from Adam's side and he forms the woman. He then brings the woman to man and then man names her. Notice forming, being brought to man and he names her. We see the, the, the imagery of being taken from Adam's side that he is not, she is not to be over him and he is not to rule over her in a, in a demeaning or subduing way, but she is taken out of his side near his heart where he's to be equal with her, but to protect her and to care for her as his own body, as Paul tells us. And then he sees woman when God brings him to her and he says that beautiful poem that you can try on your wife. You are now bone <laughs> of my bone and flesh of my flesh and you shall be called woman for you are taken out of man. Yeah. 
And so God forms her and brings her to man, and he names her, and he names her woman. And he sees at last he is not alone, and he has a helper fit for him. And so there we could, we could, we could sit on this more and we could talk on this later, but we see that even in the equality of men and women being both made in God's image, they are both given distinct responsibilities and roles that are fleshed out in the marriage, that are fleshed out in the dominion mandate. And those roles are, if you will, exemplified and compared to the relationship between Christ and the church in Ephesians 5. We then get to that third part of the text and we see the unity of marriage that they are now one flesh. And this bond, this this language is literally covenant language, this bond of leaving and cleaving and this one flesh union, speaking here both of intimacy, but but communion with one another, creates a new family unit that is that is greater and more significant than any blood yeah. union. That this family formed here is goes beyond uh, divorce, goes beyond even death. And this union here is sacred. And there is a two-body union becoming one body and one soul and one flesh. And this then is a beautiful picture of the gospel. And as we partook of communion after the sermon, we were reminded of the reality that because we are now in Christ, we are now bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And we have been brought to him and he has called us his bride and he is our husband. And we are partaking of the Lord's Supper, waiting for our husband to return. And until then, he is purifying us by his spirit through the word, sanctifying us and cleansing us. So on that day, we would wear a bright, white, pure, and undefiled gown as we stand before him, as he returns and we see him face to face. And then that leads into what you want to talk about today, is if that wasn't enough to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I felt like I went through that really fast. <laughs> no, that was quick. I mean, so that was an hour-long sermon uh, condensed into three minutes. That doesn't mean that my sermon should be shorter. I'm just saying. No, no, not at all. Who implied that? It's one of our members listening, I'm sure. I'm sure. That being said, there's a lot to unpack there. Specifically, I think, where you said our, the, our marriage is to bring joy and glorify God, which is what you wanted to expand on here. So— where do we start in that conversation? We can start with the difficulties of doing that in a marriage. We can start with a, a number of things. But how do we as as married Christians find joy and glorify God in our marriage in the sinful, fallen state that we find ourselves in? Yeah, let's start with the tension. Yeah. Let's start with the tension. Because I just gave, you know, I hear some saying, well, that's the ideal in the garden. We're on th- we're on this side of the. We're ball. just making the best of what we got here. Have you read the curses of Genesis three? Uh-huh. Right, uh-huh. and in particular, there's 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 conflict between the man and the woman. Have you read those? Have you read Genesis four fratricide? Have you read about Abraham and his wife and lying when he goes into Egypt? Have you read about David and his all that I, all that and Solomon <laughs> all that? Have you read First Corinthians and that church? Like yeah. we live on this side of the fall. The reality is is that sin takes God's good design in marriage and the joy that we're to have in marriage and marriages that are glorify God and it corrupts it, corrupts it ultimately either where we make marriage an idol into itself or we distort the meaning of marriage that it's to be a picture of the gospel or we totally abandon marriage and we try to pursue all of the blessings of marriage outside of the cup, right? Oneness of flesh, yep. intimacy, being vulnerable and bare before someone in every sense of the way. Yeah. Outside of, by the way, marriage as a covenant is God's protection for the man and the woman. Mm-hmm. That there is a covenant. It, the, the picture in Genesis is 
God bringing the woman before the man as a man, as a father brings his daughter before a man on the wedding day. Mm-hmm. And there is a, there is witnesses. God is the witness between this covenant union and the covenant union is, is testified before God that we are now one flesh, but we live on this side of the fall and we know some of our deepest hurts in life come within the confines of marriage. Yeah. Because our deepest longing is to be fully known and fully loved. And the reality is that's also our deepest fear to be fully known. That if we're fully known, we won't be loved. We will be, we won't be loved. Yeah. Right. And the nakedness in the garden, all that play into that, the beauty of the gospel then helps us with this. Right. We reckon, well, I'm gonna, let's stop there. Let's, so yeah. talk about, so we, we got, so I'm going to let you get in on this a little bit. All right. All right. We've got the, the, the tragedy of sin that comes and corrupts marriage. Yeah. And this is not something that is foreign to God's people. No. Right. How does the gospel help us to deal with that tragedy and shape the way that we approach marriage? I would say in a number of ways, the one would be the concept of forgiveness <clears throat> that as Christ forgave us, his church, that ultimate sense of forgiveness should be present and replicated in, in our marriages. In, in the vast majority, I would pray in this conversation, we're referring to two Christian spouses in, in the context of this conversation with a lot of helpful stuff from Paul if we weren't talking about two Christian spouses. But in the context of that conversation, Christ has forgiven them of their sins. And for a husband or wife to look at their spouse that has been redeemed and forgiven in the eyes of Christ and say, I'm going to hold that sin against you for another week, for another month, for another year, whatever that time period, is saying, Christ can forgive you, but I can't. You, you, you know, you, you owe me some more penance. You know, his death on the cross was good enough for your salvation, but the sin in your life has caused an egregious offense against me that it needs more than what Christ had to offer. You now have to make it better That's somehow. Right. And whether that be uh, husband to wife or wife to husband, that is a, a clear abandonment of the gospel in what should be a gospel-filled marriage. And it's not going to be something instantaneous, and it should be something that is guarded, right? Obviously, if a husband or wife sins against each other, it shouldn't be viewed as flippant. And, oh, you're forgiven. Don't worry about it. That's not what I'm saying. But there should be a genuine repentance and forgiveness from both parties as as a depiction of the gospel because that's and even Christ. forgiveness before forget even re- forgiveness before, before repent. the spouse repents exactly completely. That's how Christ loved the church. That forgiveness for us was on the cross before we were born, much less before we were committing the sins that we were eventually forgiven of, but already forgiven of. Mm. <laughs> to put it in a, in one way, I think that would be one of the defining ways that the gospel should be readily apparent in our marriages would be through. Forgiveness. Let me jump in on that real yeah. quick. I think so. What you're saying is the gospel helps us to realize that we are two sinners saying I do. The gospel shapes our expectations of marriage. Go. The yeah. gospel reminds us that our spouse is not meant to be God for us. Yep. Our, the gospel reminds us that our spouse is going to sin against us. The gospel reminds us that while our spouse is a good gift, he is nowhere or she is nowhere close to being the good gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ. 
And when we understand the love that we have experienced from God through demonstrated for us on the cross, through the Son, and poured out into us by the Spirit, that then shows us how much we're known and loved by God despite our sin. Yeah. And then frees us and fuels us to love our spouses in that way, even after we fully know them. Yeah. The, the, one of the things about marriage that really struck me is we, Heather and I have talked about this often. That we've been married for tw- 12 years, 12 years in May. And when we look, right. yeah, <laughs> 12 years in May, May 22nd, 2010. There you go. Can't remember the kid's birthday, but I got that one. All right. The, all the, bir- kids, all the birthdays are before June. So I got okay. that. <laughs> Six month time frame. Yeah, you could. We, we, we often reflect on how much we've changed since the day we said I do. Yeah. We're still the same people, but in one sense, we're not. We've both hopefully grown in godliness, but there's also been some things that we've realized about each other. And that's one of the difficulties about marriage. You know, you think, well, how can I go into the workplace or even to church and be so friendly, so forgiving, and so patient with these people? And then I go home and my wife says one thing and all that's gone. Forget about forgiveness, forget about patience, forget about long-suffering, or vice versa, her to me. And the gospel helps us to deal with that. The gospel helps us. It shapes our, think about it. The gospel shapes our emotions. It shapes the way that we view duty to one another. Yeah. It shapes the way that we share love with one another. So that even if my love is not, or my wife is not loving me the way that she ought to, the gospel frees me to love her the way I should Mm -hmm. and vice versa. And even when I feel like the emotions are gone because I have made a covenant with her, I have decided I'm going to fulfill my duties and I'm going to even do those acts of love even when I don't feel them Yeah, because I've made a covenant with her before God. And if we look at the gospel, the love defined by the gospel should change the love that we have in our marriages. Yes. So often in the world, love is viewed kind of like what you just said a second ago is some type of feeling or emotion that can come and go a secular or Greek esque form of romantic love when we as Christians and a gospel filled marriage should should be quite different than that <clears throat> and i what i don't mean solely is and i do agree with these statements so i mean i mean this but not only this well you're a christian so no matter what happens divorce is off the table right that that, that should be a byproduct of how this love is in our lives and in our in our relationships it should not be the end goal that, well, that's, that means when we walk into marriage counseling, divorce is off the table. There you go. We have a Christian marriage. Christian love, Christian thing. But I think it's more than that. I think it should also, people view, well, that emotional love has left. And even though it's gone and that we regret that, we're still going to love each other. No, I would say that that love has matured. That it shouldn't even be, you shouldn't even want your love to stay that way. If your love is exactly the same towards your wife as it was the day you got married, something's probably wrong. Should be it, greater. It should have grown and matured. And yes, from the outside world, that looks like a negative thing. But as Christians, we see it growing in light of the gospel. We see it growing in a deeper understanding of each other and of God. And as long as we are, are both individually focused on God— and focused on getting closer to him, it, it's it's inevitable that we become closer to each other because he's t- he's tied into that covenant as well. 
You know, it's not just us too. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, many of us think of our marriages as Christians. I just need to survive. Yeah. Right. We've made a covenant until death do us part. So I'm just going to, I'm going to ride this thing out. Or, or it's easier to keep going than turn back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, well, divorce would be messy or whatever. So yeah. I'm going to stay in this thing. How about you're staying in this thing because you want to thrive together and imaging the gospel before the world? Yeah. You know, the, the flip side is you said emotions. Marriage is purely this sort of love, is purely this sort of emotional thing. Yeah. The flip side of what you're also hitting at is marriage is sort of this pure conditional contract. Yeah. Marriage for most people is you a covenant of works. Yeah. It's a covenant of works. Yeah. The moment the terms are violated, I'm out. Yeah. But marriage for the Christian should be reflecting the covenant of grace, God's graciousness to us and loving us abundantly without measure. And we turn and love our spouses in that way. And to see that in the world, it, it's not going to look like what we just described. Oh, it's covenant of works. It's lacking in grace. Like that's terminology we would use. Mm -hmm. What you see it as in the world is, well, it's a 50-50 thing, right? It's I got to meet you halfway. Well, there needs to be some compromise. Well, sometimes you just got to say, yes, dear. All of those are really subtle tells towards a transactional view of marriage. Are you against compromising with your wife? No, I'm not against I know, I'm being facetious. <laughs> yeah. It's not that I'm against compromising with my wife. It's that often those point to a greater uh, misunderstanding of marriage. Some, I mean, in one way, happy wife. Happy life. Right. That, that's, that is antithetical to scripture. Don't apologize to your wife. You ain't done anything wrong. <laughs> Why would you? You've right. not sinned. Right. But we've got this worldly view of marriage summarized in all these short little pithy sayings that are now just accepted as gospel truth that, that should not be the case. Mm. If you have not sinned against someone, why are you apologizing? And, and not to harp on that too long, we could go a different direction with this. Husbands should be loving their wives as Christ loved the church. And that means a whole lot of sacrifice and a whole lot of, in some ways— and I wouldn't say this across the board. This is too generic of a rule to apply to every state of every marriage. But in many ways, that husband should be leading the family, guarding his wife. We just talked about it with Adam in terms of the they are equal, but he had the role of protecting her. And sometimes that means you're, you're going to get hit with some stuff and, and she doesn't need to be hit with that. And you're going to be that guard. You're going to be that protector. And that's not always easy especially for husbands in the world today where the the, the worldview of 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 man of flesh is not even just equality in the sense that we're talking about but interchangeability mm -hmm. that is the goal of a worldly marriage or together. inferiority so, right right that's the old, that's where it's progressing to yeah. now that it was men are men women are women here are the defined roles although they weren't Based on scripture, they imitated scripture. I think that's a good way of pointing it. The 1950s and 60s wasn't some utopia of Christian living, is what I'm trying to say there, to, well, now you're just interchangeable. Your role as a husband and her role as a wife, other than the, the hardware, if you will, involved in that, is interchangeable. And now you're right. It is pointing towards inferiority, mm -hmm. towards the man being inferior in the marriage and the woman being— She needs to be a man. Right, but that's the that's the that's the irony of it all. Yeah, it's not just yes, you're correct. Absolutely. The woman needs to air quotes be a man now. But also we see men becoming women or attempting to do so as a perverse way of I am a man, I'm inferior, so become a woman so that I could be a woman that's being the man in a relationship. Right. 
And that's kind of a convoluted way of thinking about it, right? And the 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 danger there, and I, and I would simplify that as this, especially whether, because a lot of these political terms, you know, feminism, patriarchy, all this kind of stuff, if the goal of your ideology and movement, and we'll, you can use feminism as an example, you can use male misogyny as an example, I don't care. I can be and do whatever I want to be and do. If that is the root of your ideology, it is against scripture. Mm. We can be and do what God has called us to be and do. So as a man who confesses and believes in Christianity and submits to the authority of scripture, I cannot be and do whatever I want to be and do. That's right. And my wife, as a woman professing Christianity and submitting to the scripture, can't be whatever she wants to be and can't do whatever she wants to do. We are both bound to what scripture commands of us. And if we submit to that, it will impact our marriage. And it will bring about joy in God's glory. Exactly. Joy and goodness and glory for God is all found within yeah. his commands and his design. But most people look for joy in their marriage from without. Right. These outside sources, these outside stimulus, this, you know, I'm not satisfied with what I have right in front of me, so I'm going to seek out more, mm-hmm. whether that's uh, discontentment in the home. So, and I'm not condemning people who do this in a, in a good sense, but it, it, all of a sudden it just comes about escaping the house. We just need to get away from the kids. Not once in a while. We're talking a routine pattern of, can I dump these kids off of the grandparents every right. day almost so I can keep living my life right. outside of the family God has given me? Or, or pursuing that same means, that same goal through the means of a career, mm-hmm. work, husband or wife, to continually ignore the commands that I've been given towards my family and excuse it by, well, how else can I provide for them? You're not providing for them. You're giving them a house and food. That's not what they need ultimately. And you could be providing for them ultimately and maybe providing for them a little bit less temporally. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to do that. Right. And, and that focus of I want to give my family everything I didn't have as a child. Right. It's kind of stereotypical, hallmark sounding, but you're giving them everything you didn't have as a child and they don't need any of it. They need you as a father or mother in the home. Mm-hmm. Being a father and mother, husband and wife. And now we're, we're several generations deep in that to where there is no generational within probably two to four generations. What are you pointing to as an example of marriage? Right. What are you pointing to as an example of being a good parent? When we're multi-generationals deep into we don't need to be parents. We don't need to be husband and wife. We need to have children and procreate, and then it'll work itself out as long as we just keep doing what we're told. Right. A little bit of a soapbox there. No, but (laughs) you're pointing on the reality about how the gospel shapes our affections in the way that we view God's commands, and the way that we view God's design, the way that we view the authority of men and women. And that then brings that to the second reality that we need to pursue the growth and we need for, for in our marriage to have a meaningful marriage we need to pursue our growth and gospel graces over our growth towards one another and when we are both growing in gospel graces we will not only both grow closer to god but we will grow closer together at the same time and then last obviously the obvious we don't have time to read it but we'll wrap it up here 
the meaning and the purpose of marriage is the gospel. Yeah. It is a picture of the gospel. And the reality is, is that the Lord has given us two things in the church to image the gospel, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And that third thing that he has given us is our marriages and the way that we love one another, knowing each other fully, yeah. and yet still loving each other in a sacrificial way, yeah. as we see in the gospel. And not only is it related to the gospel, it can it can help share the gospel. I think we can close with a brief story, illustration. So right after you preach this sermon, and I do mean like that was Sunday, Monday morning, first thing when I, when I wake up, you know, I had someone ask me a difficult situation, not that he was dealing with in his marriage, but through some friends. And, you know, there was some trouble. There was some tension. There were some issues that could be, that needed to be resolved. And they were asking for advice. And he gave them, I wouldn't say gave her not bad advice, but when he asked me my opinion on it, I got to almost summarize your sermon the very next day which points back to preaching in the church, equipping of the saints to go and minister the gospel. So that was very, very encouraging. And just walk right through from creation to the church in Christ. And that, and I think I specifically said in this context that she might need to forgive before he actually repents because that's how she will share the love of Christ to her husband. And there might be a point in their relationship 10 years down the road where he's going to have to do the same thing. But if the view is, if it doesn't get better, I'm probably going to give up. And once I give up, there's no going back. That's the type of transactional marriage that we're defining here among professing Christians. And instead, if we viewed it as, and I described for the sake of time, all the stuff that we just talked about, especially in the first five minutes of this, and it, it was impactful to the person I was talking to, who again is a third party, just kind of Mm. asking for advice from a from a Christian brother. And he came back to me the next day, and, and it's his words, not mine. And he said, I don't think I told her anything wrong, but everything I told her was centered around her, and everything you said was centered around Christ. And that is the, me- that is the message of marriage, is that mm. it should be centered on Christ. Mm. And that, yes, other things can be beneficial. Outside things can be enjoyed, but ultimate joy only comes from within Christ, even in our marriages. Amen. Well, when we look at marriage, even the best of godly Christian marriages, we are pointed towards like our husband. We are pointed towards Christ, who is our husband, Amen. and who has loved us and given himself for us and is now washing us with his word, and we are waiting for his return. Amen. Thanks again for listening to Pilgrim Talk. And once again, we'd encourage you to visit us on Facebook. You can search Theology for Sojourners. That is the word for F-O-R. And again, if you found this episode helpful or you know someone that might benefit from it, go ahead and share it with your friends. 